smaller portion today, so that means we've got more to say. So let's uh, look to the Lord in prayer for his help. God, take anything that keeps us from feeling the full force of this revelation of your Son. Dash it from our minds and bring your word and truth home to us in power to your glory and our transformation to his likeness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jerusalem, Israel, much in the news these days. Scripture says some marvelous things about Jerusalem. Here the beginning of Psalm 48. Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. The city of our God, the city of the great king. Isaiah 2, the first of three verses, the word which Isaiah the son of Amos beheld concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will be in the last days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains and will be lifted up above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us from his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion, the law will go forth and the word of Yahweh in Jerusalem. Jerusalem has a marvelous past. It has an amazing future. And one of its highest and most significant days is before us now as its king approaches it. In Matthew 21, we see Jesus at the climax of his ministry nearing this city of Jerusalem, the city of our God, the city of the great king. Watching and listening, we will learn a great deal about God's plan, about his word, and about his son. So let us join Jesus and his followers as they are approaching the city. Roman numeral 1, verses 1 through 5. They're approaching the city. And first we're brought to see the preparation, verses 1 through 3. And when they drew near unto Jerusalem and came unto Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village which is opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey bound there and a foal with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if someone should say something to you, you will say, their Lord has need, and immediately he will send them. So let's talk first then about this journey in verse 1a. And when they drew near unto Jerusalem and came unto Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, you can say Bethphage or Bethphage, different pronunciations. Let's talk about where they were heading. They're heading towards Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is kind of a bracket in Matthew's gospel. You see a lot about it at the start and a lot about it at the end. The word occurs 11 times in the gospel. The first five occurrences are in the first five chapters, and and we're in Jerusalem in chapter 2, you remember, with the Magi and Herod the Great. And then it's mentioned six times just in chapters 15 through 21. Mentioned six times, but it's the setting of chapters 21 through 28. So Matthew brackets his gospel with the city of Jerusalem. Now let's talk about this journey that they're taking. Most of the start of Matthew's gospel is, is where? 
It's in the north, in the region of Galilee. Just about all of it is up there. It doesn't dip down into Jerusalem. And there's a big shift, you remember, in chapters 12 and 13, which in terms of the structure of the gospel, this is the center, where in chapter 12, a series of clashes with the religious leaders leads to them committing the the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and Jesus pronouncing their desertion by God and by the Holy Spirit. Then in chapter 13, the, the structural center of the gospel, we have these parables of the mysteries of the kingdom, explaining what is going to do, what is going to happen now. What's the kingdom program now that Israel has so rejected its king? And so that's chapter 13, and there begins to be a shift in the narrative. Um, big events in chapter 16. Take a look there just to remind yourself. Chapter 16... Jesus asks them about his identity. You remember they're in Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus asks, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they report various people, and Peter confesses, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus announces this future building program, something that's never been done before, isn't being done then, but will be done in the future. He says, I will build my church on that truth that you just confessed the truth that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then he speaks of Peter's keys of the kingdom and their ability to speak the words of God. But this is a huge shift. And you know he goes on to say shocking words given Peter's confession. Verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And that is... uh, That is a change in direction in a couple of ways. As I say, they've been in Galilee, but he says now we've got to go to Jerusalem. And the narrative then begins to shift and take them to Jerusalem. And they're journeying to Jerusalem. Now, that's chapter 16. You know chapter 17 is the mouth of Mount, not the mouth, the Mount of Transfiguration. Chapter 18 is filled with instructions for citizens of the kingdom. And then look at chapter 19, verse 1. Chapter 19, verse 1, now it happened that when Jesus had finished these words, Matthew does that every time Jesus is given a discourse, as Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Now that's a little note, but it's a big thing. It signals that he is heading their band towards the city of Jerusalem. That's the journey. Now what's going to happen at Jerusalem? Well, I just had you in chapter 16, and I read only part of the verse. Let's finish the verse. He says that uh, he's going to go to Jerusalem, and what's going to happen there? Will he be acclaimed as he should be, king? No. Suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the last day. He begins to show them from Scripture that this must happen underscore that word. He must, and that applies to everything that follows. He must, A, go to Jerusalem, B, suffer many things, C, be killed, D, be raised up. Those are an absolute necessity. That's what's happening in Jerusalem. His wrongful murder, his execution, his burial, his resurrection. He sounds this again in chapter 20, just uh, before the chapter we're in. Chapter 20, verses 17 and 19 through 19, pardon me, and Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, and he took the 12 disciples aside, and he said to them, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, 
And he's in no doubt about what's going to happen. And the Son of Man will be, not maybe, will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him over to the Gentiles to mock and flog and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. All of those equally certain, his abuse, his torture, his death, his resurrection. This is all going to happen in Jerusalem. So this is where they're going, and this is what's going to happen. Whatever we think of Jesus and his ministry, we must not think that this caught him by surprise. This is part of God's eternal plan unfolding here. This is why he's going there. He's going there for this to be done. And so now Matthew gives us a little pause before Jerusalem in Bethphage. Bethphage is like the furthest out suburb from Jerusalem that the rabbis would count as Jerusalem. That if if you have to be in the Jerusalem area, they would count this. I mean, this is like Cyprus from Houston or something like this. This is on the edge, uh, a suburb from uh, Jerusalem. And here's just an interesting thing, and I think significant. What is the meaning of that place name, Bethphage? It means the house of unripe figs. Now, if you've read ahead in the story, you see why that's significant. And often little notes in these narratives about going up, going down, place names, they are part of the story and part of what God wants to teach us. So he pauses before going to Jerusalem at the house of unripe figs. So then we have the instructions in verses 1b through 3. It tells the apostles to go to Bethphage uh, and to, that they will find a donkey, and the donkey's full, which Mark tells us has never been ridden before, and they're to bring both back to him. So one simple fact about this is that Jesus had contacts in these suburbs. He knew people in these suburbs. And while it may be that this was a miraculous thing that Jesus knew and told them by miraculous knowledge, it's probably that he knew people and he had this prearranged uh, for him and that, that it was uh, ready to be provided for him for his journey into Jerusalem. That's just a simple fact. But in this, there are as well two remarkable facts. The first remarkable fact is Jesus is engineering a clearly messianic event. Jesus is engineering a clearly and openly messianic event. Now, why is this a remarkable thing? I just remind you, you can write these verses down. I'll read them to you. Matthew 8, 4 He cleanses a leper and then tells him, see that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest. And that's not a lone incident. That was 8-4. Now in 9-30, the kind of companion story to the two blind men he just healed, here he heals two blind men as well, opens their eyes, and sternly warns them, saying, see that no one knows about this. But remember, he doesn't say that to the two blind men whose eyes he opens in chapter 20. He doesn't tell them. In fact, they join the crowd that in a few moments is shouting out just like they did that he's the son of David. But 9.30 says, see that no one knows about this. 12.16, there are many who follow him and he- he's healing them. And he warns them not to make him known in 12.16 right after a clash with the Pharisees about the Sabbath and healing on the Sabbath. That was 1216, and now in 1620, when the disciples confess, when Peter confesses that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, he warns the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. 
that they were to keep it under their hats, as it were. And then in 17.9, after the vision on the Mount of Transfiguration, as they're coming down from the Mount, Jesus along with Peter, James, and John, he says, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man be risen from the dead. So again and again, he forbids people from telling who he is and what he's done. Uh, we see something similar in John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. In John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, after he'd multiplied the bread and the fish and fed the thousands, the people say, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Interestingly, that's what the people are going to be told in Jerusalem about who he is. He's the prophet. Well, when they say that in John 6, 15, <clears throat> we read, Jesus, knowing that they were going to come and take him by force and make him king, what did he do? He withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. He wanted no part of that. And yet here, obviously, we see quite a change in that he's engineering something that, as I showed you last week and I'll show you again, will say that he is the messianic king coming to his city. That's a remarkable thing. He, he engineered an openly messianic event. A second remarkable thing is that he tells them to refer to him as their Lord. Now, that's not a never thing on his lips, but it's an infrequent thing on his lips. And particularly in this way that it's, it's hard not to take it as meaning deity. Because he's saying, if anyone says anything to you, tell them their Lord. In other words, the Lord of these donkeys. Now, how does he own these donkeys? Not in normal human terms, he doesn't. But as Lord, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he owns those donkeys. And so he says, their Lord has need of them. Or, or if you go to the, the more common translation, even he says, the Lord has need of them still. It's, it's his lordship that he asserts. Uh, and it is more meaningful than just uh, of a mere human being. So he puts Lord in their mouths. And just a few minutes later, the crowd will be acclaiming him the son of David. And he doesn't stop them. He doesn't shush them. He doesn't reproach them at all. He accepts it. So why why this change? Why is he now engineering an openly messianic event? And why is he calling himself Lord and letting them call him son of David? Because his time has come. Many times he said, my time is not yet, but his time has come. And as I pointed out, when he does finally allow it to be said openly, he's dead inside of a week. So, this has been the plan from ages eternal, and now it's coming to fruition on the shoulders of the Son of God. So that's the preparation we see in verses 1 through 3. Now let's look at prophecy in verses 4 through 5, and this will be very instructive. Now this has happened, Matthew tells us. This is for you and me. Thank you, Matthew. Now this has happened in order that it might be fulfilled, which was said through the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, gentle and having mounted upon a donkey, even upon a foal, the offspring of a yoked animal. Now, before I even go through the numbered things, let me just give you a little something at absolutely no extra charge. But notice this, this uh, phrase that is so common that, that we're inclined not to notice it. But the way Matthew says, how does he say this? It happened in order that it might be fulfilled, which was said, what's the preposition? Through the prophet. 
not merely by the prophet. Well, we know the prophet wrote these words, but that's not what Matthew says. It was said through him. So who said it? God said it through the prophet. So sometimes you'll hear people say silly things like the, the, the doctrine of the inerrancy or inspiration of Scripture is a recent invention. Well, that's indeed very silly. The idea goes back just to exactly when the, the Bible was written. And the idea that God speaks through prophets underlies the authority of the Bible. That this is not merely the word of men. Yes, men wrote it, but men wrote it as moved by the Holy Spirit. God spoke through these men. And so the reason why, of course, this had to be fulfilled is because God said it would be. Of course it will be. The prophet said it. The prophet wrote it down. But God was the ultimate source of this. So as I say, that's free with the meal. Let's talk first about its planning, number one. It's planning. And I just want to say briefly, is it weird that Jesus arranged this? I don't know that anybody has this thought, but in case somebody does, well, so this is a fulfillment of prophecy, and Jesus arranged for it to happen? That's kind of weird. Well, let me say two things. First of all, just say again, well, go back to Matthew 1 and just start reading how many of those prophecies that were fulfilled could he have arranged? That he be of the right genealogy, that he be of the kingly tribe, that he be born to a virgin mother, that he be carried down to Egypt, that he be... Uh, uh, there would be a slaughter in Bethlehem, that he'd be carried back to Nazar Nazareth and have that hanging on his head, that he was uh, called a Nazarene, and so forth and so on. So many prophecies were something he could not possibly have arranged. But even more than that, just think about this. God plans and executes all of history. Everything happens because God arranges it. This is the size of the God of Scripture. Uh, unbelievers hate this about God, and too many Christians fight against it. But the fact is, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.11, God works all things after the counsel of His will. And as uh, Psalm 115.3 says, all He pleases, He does. And as Daniel says, He raises up one king and puts an another down. And none can ward off His hand and say to Him, what are you doing? He's Lord of history. And although the word history doesn't derive from his story, etymologically, it is his story. And so if you buckle at, at, at him arranging this, well, I'll tell you just a, a big pro tip. He arranges everything. He controls everything. So whether it's God the Son engineering this or God the Father engineering everything else, this is working out according to the plan of God. It's not artificial. It's just another day ending in why in the divine governing of the universe. Secondly, let's talk about its principles. Now, I mean the principles here of understanding prophecy. And these are important things to understand and things that the Jews did not understand sufficiently. And one principle I'm going to single out is something we often see in Scripture, and that is telescoping. We often see telescoping in Scripture by which I mean we see events that actually may be separated by days, months, years, or millennia reported as if they were one. Now you see this as you drive up to a mountain range. You look and you, you feel like you're just seeing a mountain, but as you get close, you realize you're seeing mountain after mountain after mountain. Or when I think about it, really is watching baseball uh, where the batter is, is filmed through a tele, uh, telephoto lens and you know when he pops a ball, I can't tell if the ball is going out or going back, right? 
if you notice the same thing, until either someone out there catches it or it bounces off the net behind him. But as far as the look of it, it's hard to tell through a telephoto lens which direction it's going on. Well, prophecy looks at history often through a telephoto lens. And let me give you an example of this. Turn to Luke chapter 4 with me. Yes, please actually go there with me. I'd like you to be looking at these words because there's something to be gleaned from them. Luke chapter 4. Not at all hard to find. Starting with verse 16. Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And he was given a scroll of Isaiah, and he read from Isaiah. Now, hear the words and note them closely. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. There's the final words, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closes the scroll and he says to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, with that ringing in your ears, let me just read to you from the original source. Jesus there is reading from Isaiah chapter 61. And I want you to, I, I, how can we do this? Hold up your hand when Isaiah says more than Jesus said. And it's going to be a while, so follow along in Jesus' quotation as I read from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh, and the day of vengeance of our God. I see hands going up. Exactly right. To comfort all who mourn. That's right. Jesus broke off after the words to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh. And he said, today this is fulfilled in your ears. But what of the next words? Will they be fulfilled? And the day of vengeance of our God. Yes, they will. But we so far know that at least 2,000 years se separate the fulfillment of the first part of the verse from the second part of the verse. That's telescoping. There is a gap between his first and his second coming. His first coming accomplished what we have read so far. His second coming will be the day of vengeance of our God. That's telescoping. Let me show you another. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9 with me. These are familiar words. Or if they're not, they will be pretty soon because you hear them around Christmas time and quite appropriately. So I'll just, I'll just tuck in with verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, when was that fulfilled? His first coming, he was a child born to us. He was a son given to us. But read on. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Has that happened yet? It has not. Is he sitting on the throne of David now? He is not. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. 
One day he will come back and sit on the throne of David. So there we have between Isaiah 9.6 and Isaiah 9.7 at least 2,000 years separating fulfillment. That's telescoping. You could see another in chapter 11. I'll just briefly allude to it. And, and there are many. I'm just picking out a few. Chapter 11, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. This is Jesus' first coming. And the spirit of Yahweh rested on him at his baptism. But as you read on, you read about him judging the poor and, and striking the earth with the rod of his mouth like Psalm 2 told about. And a transformed creation with predators lying down with their former prey and venomous serpents posing no threat to young children. Has that happened? That has not happened. So again, at least 2,000 years separate the opening words of this chapter from the rest of the chapter. That's the principle of telescoping. And when we were, we're still a minute away from uh, Zechariah 9, but you need to understand that principle to understand this prophecy that Jesus is about to fulfill. But before we do, I want to ask and answer the question, why? Why is there a separation between uh, the two uh, movements in Jesus' career? Well, it's because of the mystery, letter B, because of the mystery. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is talking uh, with great delight about his unique ministry. And he says in verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, if you've heard of the stewardship that was given to me, verse 3, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, now he, like all the apostles and prophets of the New Testament, had a mystery revealed. This is not something he learned from studying Old Testament Scripture. He says, and he's at pains to say, that this was revealed, it was made known to him, this mystery. Mystery in the sense of a sake. <clears throat> pardon me, a sacred secret that wasn't known until God revealed it. And what is that mystery? Verse 4, the mystery of Christ, he calls it. And he says in verse 5, that in other generations it was not made known to the sons of men as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. He and his fellow apostles and prophets, all of whom knew the same mystery and preached the same gospel. It's revealed to all of them. And what is that mystery, Paul? Verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister. And so verse 9, he says, it was his great joy to bring to light for all what is the ad administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So as we saw Jesus say that the church was not something in existence, but it was something he would build, that's the mystery. That was not revealed in the Old Testament. It was revealed to the apostles and prophets. And that is what separates the first coming of Christ from the second coming of Christ. Israel is under judgment and under discipline. And now God is moving in the church, which is composed of Jew and Gentile together on equal footing in Jesus Christ. And God has promises and a plan for Israel in the future. 
and when he will resume his plan and, and consummate it. But right now, this is the church age, and it's rightly called the church age. Paul refers to this same thing in Colossians 1.27. You might just jot down, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, oh, it's behind the screen, <laughs> but it's on the wall behind me, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, Gentiles, the hope of glory. That's, that's the mystery. So there's the, the principle of understanding prophecy. Now let's look at the particular of the prophecies that Matthew cites and that we see uh, uh, being uh, lived out here. Now you'll notice in my translation two sets of quotation marks. Uh, first say to the daughter of Zion and then look your king is coming to you and so forth. That's because Matthew quotes from two locations. The first few words are quoted from Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 11, which we won't take the time to look at it now, but I encourage you to, and you'll see it's very much a messianic chapter. If you read on, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they'll be called the holy people, the redeemed people. This is all about the restoration of Israel. Not all of which happened at Jesus' first coming, but he did come to them. He did offer himself to them. So that's Isaiah 62, 11, which is quoted at the start of verse 5. But then the rest is quoted from Zechariah 9. And there we see telescope. And you can turn there if you like. I'm just going to give you a kind of a whirlwind tour of, of Zechariah 9. Uh, it's supposed to have a bookmark because that's one of those, one of them, they're little minor prophets. There we go. Okay, Zechariah chapter 9 is very interesting. The first eight verses are all history that has happened before the coming of Christ. Uh, you start reading in verse 1, Oracle of Yahweh is against the land of Hadrach with Damascus as its resting place. He names Hamath, Tyre, Sidon uh, in the verses before. Ashkelon, verse 5, Gaza, Ekron. These are all places to the north of Israel. And let me just tell you that the order that he names these places trace a campaign heading south towards Jerusalem through these Philistine and otherwise towns. This campaign was a campaign undertaken when by who? By Alexander the Great in around 332-333 AD. I said that in the wrong order. 330, and I also said AD wrong, so let's say that again, shall we? Alexander the Great in 333 and 332 BC. Alexander the Great conqueror from Macedonia came down through that area, conquering in this order. Uh, and uh, this, this all, I'm just thinking of how best to say this, this all is fulfilled in his campaigns. And then in verse uh, 7, we read of the blood being removed from their mouth, detestable things, and they become like a remnant of our God, like a clan in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. Those were people who did not become Israelites, but they were uh, encompassed, as you were, as, if you will, by Israel. And what that probably points forward to is the time of the Maccabees, around 148 BC, 148 to 146 BC, when they were taken over and they were given over to Israel, and they were basically uh, uh, proselytized to Israel. And, and uh, 
And thus these words were fulfilled. So all of this leads up to before the time of Christ. Then we have Isaiah, Zechariah 9.9, which Matthew quotes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Make a loud shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, lowly and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. That looks at Isaiah, at Messiah's first coming. And what's remarkable about it in the context? It comes after this narrative of the conquest of the very warlike oppressor and conqueror, Alexander the Great. And what was Alexander the Great noted for? He rode on a horse. Does anyone know the name of the horse? Because it is famous. Oh, very good. Travis. Bucephalus, which means in Greek, uh, ox head, either because he had a very large head or because it was a, he was a wild horse that was tamed by young Alexander, and he rode him through his conquests, and Bucephalus took him all the way into the conquest of India. So he's noted for riding around on this, this war horse, but what about this king? He doesn't come conquering and he doesn't ride in on a horse. He comes humble, endowed with salvation, mounted on a donkey, which is not an instrument of war. It's an instrument of peace. Now, read in verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his reign will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now did verse 9 happen in the earthly ministry of Jesus? Yes, it did. Did verse 10 happen in the earthly ministry of Jesus? No, it did not. Why? What is this we're seeing? Telescoping. Telescoping, bless you. There's at least 2,000 years between verses 9 and 10. And notice again the same contrast. He's mounted on a donkey, but what do we see in verse 10? Chariot, horse, bow of war. You see, like I told you last week, a horse was a, a war instrument. It was like a tank or a Humvee or something like that in the use of warriors. That's not how he comes. He comes humble, offering salvation. But verse 10 looks on to his second coming. So there's the prophecy. Hopefully you understood it and prophecy better now. Uh, we see then in verses 6 through 9, the parade, letter C. This gives birth to a parade. The clothes in verses 6 through 8, and when the disciples had gone and done just as Jesus prescribed for them, they brought the donkey in the foal and they put upon them their clothes and he sat upon them. That is, on the clothes, <laughs> not on the two donkeys. It's not a cir circus act. And most of the crowd spread out their own clothes, by the way, but others were oh, uh, in the way, but others were cutting off branches from the trees and were spreading them in the way. This is a, a, <clears throat> a way of rolling out the red carpet, obviously, for the Messiah. So Jesus prescribed the donkeys. And he neither prescribed nor forbade this. He let them do this. An extravagant display, a sacrificial display. I doubt that they could use their clothes once they'd been ridden over by donkeys and trodden on by a parade. But again, what was the symbolism of this? 
This was the symbolism of them laying themselves at his feet before him. And as he rides over their clothes, that pictures their submission to him as their king. So clothes and branches, all of this making it a very celebratory effect. And Jesus does not forbid it. Jesus allows it. Very different from what he'd been doing, but his time has come. That's the clothes. And then in verse 9, we see the cry. And the crowds who were preceding him and those who were following kept crying out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed, be he who comes in, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest places. Now, this is a quotation from Psalm 118, and I mean to expound that psalm to you more fully uh, in a a later place, because actually, although maybe many people don't know it, some say that this is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's quoted, one scholar says, somewhere between 20 to 60 times quoted or alluded to, and Matthew quotes it several times. So we've just looked at Zechariah 9 a bit more closely. We'll look at Psalm 118 more closely when Jesus refers to it again later. But let me say a few things now. Psalm 118 is is the last of what's called the Hallel, H-A-L-L-E-L. And that's the word you hear in hallelujah. Hallel is praise, hallelujah is praise ye, hallelujah is praise ye ya. And that's a word we find in Psalms 113 through 18, which was sung at uh, the great feasts, the Passover feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Weeks. It's called Egyptian, the Egyptian Hallel, because of the allusion to Egypt in, in chapter 114, Psalm 114. And as you read these, you see it's, it's a rehearsal of Israel's history and how God has delivered it and, and has protected it and preserved it. The longest, I say, is Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm. And we'll see when we look more closely at it, that it really, it, it says a great deal about Jesus. I just want to go here long enough, hopefully, to completely ruin for you one of your favorite verses. No need to thank me. I'm happy to do it. But this is a verse that a great many people quote entirely out of context, although not, not falsely, but it's just not what the verse says. This, this psalm talks about the coming of Christ and the drawing near of Christ. In fact, we read it in the start of the service. If you look at Psalm 118, you start in verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to Yah. This is the gate of Yahweh. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you. You've answered me. You've become my salvation. Now, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You've heard that, haven't you? Yes, Jesus quotes that. About who? About himself. This is from Yahweh. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Uh Uh-oh. What's that verse about? Is that a verse that's there saying every day is a gift from God, and when you get up, you should be happy and hopeful? Well, that's true. I'm not going to spoil that for you. That's true. You open your eyes, God opened your eyes. God has a day planned for you. And if you're a Christian, God has good and blessing and wonders for you. Just don't quote this verse for that. Because what's this verse about? What day is this verse about? The day Messiah comes. And what are the day, what's the context? His rejection, but his becoming the chief cornerstone, and his entering through the gates. Because you see the next words, O Yahweh, save, O Yahweh, succeed. What's that? 
That's Hosanna. That Hosanna is that Hebrew, O Yahweh, save. Hoshakna, please save. And verse 26, blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. Well, who's that? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the day that verse 24 is about, the day when Christ comes to Jerusalem. So, you know, what can I say? I didn't write it. I just believe it and teach it. Uh, But good to know. Good to know. That is a glorious day and a day to rejoice in. And Jesus accepts this. He accepts this acclamation and them singing this and obviously singing it about him. And we'll see later in the chapter and in chapter 23, he applies it to himself also. So he's entirely in agreement to this. That is what the parade is singing. And they're singing it about Jesus. So thus far his approach to the city. Now we find him entering the city in verses 10 and 11. And he makes a commotion in verse 10a. And when he entered into Jerusalem, all the city was shaken. That's as far as we're going to go with that verse. When he entered into Jerusalem, all the city was shaken. Now, a noted and respected New Testament scholar named Harold Honer figured out exactly what this date was, and and he's very widely regarded by other scholars. He says this took place on March 30. 33 AD. That's the exact date of this event. We can't, we can't date a lot of scriptural events exactly, but he dates this event exactly. March 30, 33 AD. And the result of his entry is that the city was shaken. Now, uh, that's, it, it needs to have a strong word like that. It's not just that they were slightly disturbed but they were absolutely rattled down to their foundation. Uh, let me read you some other uses of the verb. Matthew 27:51. it will be used. Behold, the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two at Jesus' death from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The earth shook so hard the rocks were split. That kind of shaking. And then 28, verse 4, the guards quaked from fear of him and became like dead men. So they shook bad and fell over like they were dead at the sight. And then Hebrews twelve twenty six, the writer will quote a verse from the Old Testament, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heaven. He'll shake it so hard that only what he wants remains. So these are all uses of, of the verb seyo. Uh, if you wrote it in English letters, it'd be S-E-I long O. But the noun is seismos. If you wrote it in English letters, it'd be S-E-I-S-M-O-S. And the only reason I'm telling you that is you, if you wrote it down and looked at it, you'd think, oh, seismograph, seismic. Yes, indeed. That's the unit that we use to measure earthquakes. And we get it from this Greek word because it's that kind of shaking. It's a violent shaking. Uh, like in, uh, in Matthew 24, 7, Jesus uses the word of earthquakes, literal earthquakes. And in 28, 2, there's such an earthquake that the stone rolls away from the mouth of the tomb. So I say all that to say that they were really rattled. They were really violently shaken by the entrance of Jesus. The entrance of Jesus was not just, and then that happened. It was a big deal. Now, why was it so upsetting? Well, every time he comes to Jerusalem in Matthew, it's upsetting. Or I should say every time the subject of him comes up in Jerusalem, it's upsetting. We first read it 
at the start of the gospel. Like I told you, Matthew starts the gospel and ends it with Jerusalem. And in uh, Matthew chapter 2, we read, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And what effect did these dignitaries from the east come come looking for the king of the Jews? What effect did they have? Well, did that have? Well, we read Herod the king, when he heard it, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. It's a different verb, but it's a similar idea. He was deeply disturbed, and the whole city was deeply disturbed. Him, because he saw a threat to his kingship, and probably the city, because they knew what happened when Herod gets upset. And it's not donuts and puppies. He was a bad, bad guy. And, in, well, I mean, you know it. What happened? He had babies killed rather than have any thought of a threat to his kingship. So why are they so upset now? Well, because this prophet, this king, is coming from Galilee. And where's Galilee politically? Well, it's, it's under the control of a Herod. And he's coming now to Jerusalem. And where's Jerusalem politically? It's under Roman control, ruled by Roman officials. So here comes this Jew from outside of their province in a kingly manner with a bunch of crowds acclaiming him and treating him like a king. And were they upset? Oh yeah, they were really, really upset. This could be a huge problem for them politically. If Rome should think that this was the beginning of an insurrection, they wouldn't take the Gamaliel approach, you know, let's see what happens. They would squash it like a cockroach right away. And that meant a lot of Jews would die. <coughs> so they were upset. But as we'll see also, the leaders were upset because the leaders were not fans of Jesus at all. Uh, let me just put in here, back in, in Matthew chapter 15, we saw an early uh, foreshadowing of what's going to happen here. In Matthew chapter 15, which I'm getting very close to, then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And you know Jesus turns right around and gives it back to them double. Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your, trans, uh, your tradition? And he just absolutely lights into them and calls them hypocrites. Well, these are the top men from Jerusalem. So Jerusalem has taken a notice of Jesus, and their impression is not good. So anybody who sees this, whatever he knows about it, is not going to be happy. The people who know the, the potential political situation are going to be very worried. And the religious leaders here at Passover, seeing this transgressor of their tradition, their sacred tradition, Seeing him coming with a crowd, acclaiming him as son of David? Yeah, they were definitely shaken. And so comes the question in verse 10. The question is asked in verse 10b. They were shaken, saying, who is this man? Now let me just pause and say, honestly, I wish more people would ask that question. 
I mean, I really, really do. The trouble is that so many people think they know everything about Jesus and they know just about nothing about Jesus. And what they do know is false. It's not true. They know a thing they call Jesus, and it's not Jesus. It's not the real Jesus. It's not the actual Jesus. It's not the Jesus who died, rose, ascended, and saves. It's not that Jesus. It's not the Jesus who's Lord. It's not the Jesus who's son of David. It's not that Jesus. I wish they would ask, who is Jesus? The trouble is they, they think they already know, and, and, and they don't. And I look at movies and shows, and, and they take his name in vain so many times. And I, I think I do twinge every time they do. And every time they do, I think, uh, whether of the character who's being portrayed or the actor or the scriptwriter, why are you taking his name? Why are you taking his name? And what do you think you know about him? And if only you did know about him. He's exactly who you need to know. But the trouble is, and this is often the case, like Paul says, if anyone wants to become wise, first he needs to become a fool. As Jesus says, the first thing we need to do if we want to follow him is deny ourselves. And we have to come to see how little we know and how much we need God to teach us. I'll tell you, honestly, the key to my conversion was asking that question afresh. I thought I knew who Jesus was. My cult had explained to me who Jesus was, a very comfortable idea of Jesus. But I was looking at these things in the Gospels that didn't fit what they were telling me at all, and I was seeing things in my heart that didn't fit what they were telling me at all. And I started asking for serious, who is this man? And that God the Holy Spirit used to my conversion. I wish more people would ask and would ask honestly and would ask humbly, who is this Who is this man? I wish more Jews would ask that. Jews think they know him. Um, Maybe many of you will know the name Ben Shapiro. Very, very intelligent, sharp, articulate man. Not right about everything, but what he's right about, he's pretty sharp about. But somebody asked him, as he's an apostate Jew, not a believer in Jesus, somebody asked him, well, so what do you make of Jesus? And he said, he was just another guy who tried to start a rebellion against Rome and got killed for his troubles. He's got them all worked out. He's got Jesus all figured out. 100% wrong to his, own, to his own damage. I wish more people would ask this question seriously and then pursue the answer. But I would ask you, have you asked that question seriously? Have you, have you ans- asked it and pursued the answer? Who is Jesus and who is he to you? And let me ask you another question while I'm asking questions. Would you be ready to answer if somebody asked that question in your hearing? Would you be ready to answer biblically? Or are you, are you just like a Pharisee that you know your traditions, but you couldn't really go to the Bible to show them Jesus? Could you tell somebody who Jesus was? Could you show him, not on your authority, but on the authority of Scripture, who Jesus is? Every Christian should be able to do that all our lives. I mean, this is, is, is there something more important for us to know than to know our Lord? Who is Jesus? We need to know the answer to that question. Everything rides on it. It's so important today. As I say, I wish more would ask it. They asked it, and it was answered in verse 11. And the crowds kept saying, this is the prophet Jesus, the one from Nazareth of Galilee. So it's an imperfect tense verb, which 
suggests that they kept saying it. They said it over and over. The question kept being asked, and every time the question was asked, this is the answer they gave. Who is this? He's the prophet Jesus, the one from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, notice the elements of this answer. They say he's the prophet. Well, now that in itself is plenty significant. Deuteronomy 18 verses 15 through uh, 19 talk about the prophet who God said he would raise up that was a prophet like Moses. Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses says, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. You shall listen to him. Verse 18, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it will be that whosoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. That's the prophet. And that today is, is where, uh, why I call Judaism apostate Judaism. Uh, whatever, whatever branch of Judaism it is, if it's, if it's not following Christ and worshiping Christ, they've broken off. And God said that when he raised up this prophet, he expected all his people to listen to his prophet. And if they didn't, he would require it of them. So those who don't believe in Jesus are those who are not listening to the prophet God raised up. He is the prophet. That's part of why he's called Messiah. Messiah is prophet, priest, and king. The prophet Jesus, the name given him by the angel at his birth, you will call his name Jesus because why? He will save his people from their sins. And how will he do that? By the very thing he's in Jerusalem to do. By the very thing he's come to do. By dying for the sins of God's elect on the cross. Bearing their sins on his person. Jesus the Savior. The prophet, Jesus, the one from Nazareth of Galilee, they add. Now that's kind of funny. Because it's, it's as if they said, he's this great someone from absolutely nowhere. Because that's, that's the significance of saying Nazareth. Nazareth is nowhere. Back in uh, Matthew 2, and uh, Jesus, uh, Joseph has taken Jesus to Egypt, and now he's coming back, and he's going to settle down. In verse 23, Matthew 2.23 says he came and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled. He should be called a Nazarene. And people work very hard to find a prophecy that says that. But that's not what Ma Matthew says, is it? He says that was spoken through the prophets. So this is something that's kind of a summary of what prophets have said, that he'd be called a Nazarene. Now, what does it mean to be called a Nazarene? Well, it means to be called someone from a hick town, from a podunk, backwater, nowhere place. It's to be called someone from Bigfoot, Texas. Do you know where Bigfoot, Texas is? Not too far away. Bigfoot, Texas has a population of 685 people. Or maybe you could say he's from Guerra, Texas. You know what the population of Guerra, Texas is? Three people. And that's the effect of Nazareth. It's a nowhere place. He's someone from nowhere. And that's what the prophet said. What did Isaiah say in Isaiah 53? He'll grow up before them like a root out of dry ground. No former comeliness that we should desire him. Yep, didn't come with the best credentials in that way. But that's the truth about him. It's just not all the truth about him. So he is entered as king. 
He's been identified as a prophet who just did a prophetic symbolic act like prophets often did. What happens next? Well, we'll see, Lord willing, next week when we look at the Messiah then approaching his temple. So I just ask, just close by asking again, who is this man to God? And therefore, in reality, who he is, is he's, he's the Messiah. He's God the Son. He's the eternal, only begotten Son of God. He's the Messiah that God sent. He's the Savior that God sent. The one who came into this world to save sinners. That's who he is in reality. But who is he to me? Who is he to you? That's not a small question. That's not a slight question. Your response, my response to the question, who is Jesus and who is he to you? Our eternity hinges on the way we respond to that question. The way we respond to that question is what we'll face God with when we face him and we will face him. Who was Jesus to us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, and even more for the glorious Savior revealed in this, your word. Thank you for this great Lord Jesus. Thank you that he came humble and mounted on a donkey that he might accomplish our salvation. He came into the world to save sinners, and he came into the world to save sinners by dying on the cross and bearing your wrath. We who know him, thank you forever, forever for who he is and who he is to us. And our prayer for those who don't know him is that the Spirit of God will open their eyes and their ears that they might see him in truth and hear his voice calling them to himself. In Jesus' name, amen.